Welcome to episode 269 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm super stoked about this episode, which I realize probably if you looked back over our catalog, we're like contractually obligated to say that every so often, like every series of episodes we have to just say, as if to emphasize that I like speaking with you and I like having the (laughs) microphone in front of me and I like recording what we do together. So just take this for what it is. I'm contractually obligated to say I'm excited, but I really am because we're going to be moving into a little bit about scripture and the inspiration of scripture, maybe like a little Theonustros. Like we're going to get the whole thing. We're going to get it started today. Yes. So if you're as excited about that as I am, then you want to stick around until after we talk about affirmations and denials. But you also should be excited that we're about to talk about affirmations and denials. So yeah, we are. Let's get some. What do you want to start with? So I'm affirming a little complex of books. Um, the one that introduced <laughs> me to this to this series I love this. is a book by R. Scott Clark, our friend Reginald Scott Clark. We're just going to keep saying that until he <laughs> legally has to change his name. Uh, and the book is titled Casper Olivion and the Substance of the Covenant, Ooh. which uh, is... More or less, he's he's talking about how the substance acts or administration distinction, but he focuses on kind of the double benefit of Christ in the the, the book. Um, but it's part of this Reform Historical Theological Studies series that uh, Reformation Heritage Books has published. Uh, Truman, Carl Truman, just put out a um, one on John Owen and the Trinity. Yes, there's one on doctrine of active obedience that focuses on uh, Johannes Piscator. So there's all sorts of really, really good stuff in this series. They're relatively short, and obviously, I'm only looked at the one that I have in front of me. But at least the the Casper Olivion one. It's even though the chapters are a little bit longer, the chapters probably take you about an hour to read. They're broken up into really digestible subsections. So you can pick up the book, read for 15 minutes, finish like a a discrete unit of the book and then put it back down, which for me is important because like I don't always get like big, long chunks of time to sit and read. So it's just very good. It's very well done. Historically speaking, it's very well done. Theologically speaking, it's figures in this. I mean, obviously, everybody knows who John Owen is, but there's lots of figures in this series, historical figures that you might not be familiar with otherwise, which is always helpful to sort of see a broader picture of who the reformers were. You know, um, Olivian falls kind of in like the second or maybe like second and a half generation of uh, reformers. He studied directly under Calvin, but kind of at the end of Calvin's time. So um, it's a super good book. It's It's got all of the introduction to the character that you would need to have if you've never heard of him before. Uh, and Scott um, is just a super clear writer and a really good historian. So yeah, check out that book particularly and this series. Uh, we're not sponsored by them. I wish we were. But uh, check it out. It's a good book. This is like a great affirmation for this time of year. We keep speaking about this, but this is a great time to pick some reading, some goals for next year. So this would, I'd say, fit right into that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Book club. It's always a good time to start a new book club. That's right. Listen, everybody can start a book club. Everybody can grab a friend or family member and say, let's read something together. Let's meet periodically or read the whole thing and then meet together and talk about it. I just think this is like a lovely medium to get back to relationship with people and to do so under the auspice of talking about God and theology. 
there's really not a lot of things that are better than that, except maybe like grab your favorite beverage while you do it. Yeah, there you go. And then you're living the dream. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming this week? That's the dream. So it's also medium related. I'm kind of going back to the well, but maybe it's the same well with a different bucket or maybe it's a different well with the same bucket. So a couple of episodes ago, I had recommended this particular song. I'm going to call it an Advent song. It was by this metalcore band called Wolves at the Gate. The song is called Lowborn. And I'm going to double down on that, still go back and listen to it. But here's the shade of nuance here. So I'm affirming with the ubiquity of beauty and the ubiquity of appreciating beauty, no matter what your worldview. And I say that because in the course of I've been listening to this song a lot. And so I went on YouTube and you can find a really glorious, really fantastic lyric video of the song. And then what I found, and I guess this is normative in our day and age, is apparently a lot of people, a lot of like, whatever the equivalent is for podcasts on YouTube, I guess just YouTubers, is that what we call them? Yeah. So a lot of these channels, one of the things they do is they react in real time to music. And so there's a lot of metalcore, hardcore, post-hardcore people that have channels where they'll just listen to music and react in real time. I found a ton, honestly, so many people with what I seem to be legitimate channels reacting to this particular piece of music. And here's what I found so interesting. Most of these channels, and you might suspect this, are of do not come from a worldview that is Christian. And so they're listening to this song and they're reacting to it. And what I was blown away with is two things. One is that there was, I would say, pretty much universal appeal, appreciation for the beauty of the music that this band wrote. And in fact, some of the people, when they introed the song, they said, well, just so you know, this is a Christian band or a Christian band with like Christian influence. As if like to say, like, I got to give you that warning because like (laughs) you- Because it's not not going to be that good. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And so like there was the first, this wonderful, we moved into a realm. It used to be like Christianity in terms of its musical expression was like some kind of subgenre of music. And so first there was this wonderfulness where everybody was saying, this music is amazing. They, they were just remarking about how beautiful it was. And what was cracking me up is they would recognize, they would say like, by way of disclosure, this band has you know some kind of, what they would say, like Christian tendencies. And the music would come on and they'd be vibing with it and they would cuss in their appreciation of how great <laughs> the music was, even while respecting that this was like just absolutely glorious and beautiful. And then here's the second thing that surprised me. Almost all of them, and this is really crazy, remarked at how beautiful this band was at using lyrics. And all the lyrics they're talking about are from the scriptures. They're writing from yeah. the Bible. And so they said, like, there's a depth in these lyrics that transcend what is average for this type of music. So let me read, like, just kind of like the first chorus and the pre-chorus to Lowborn. Here's what Wolves of the Great write. They say, Lowborn to the world was the image of what always was invisible, unending light now veiled in flesh, impossible Lowborn Savior, setting aside your glory above, Emmanuel, what a world you love. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will raise to life. And I was just blown away by how, like, we've talked about whether you want to use whatever kind of argumentation we use around this for, like the fact that, of course, design or proclivities in all of our hearts to appreciate what is beautiful and that beauty really has to come from a transcendent being. All of that is present. But I'm just affirming the fact that where there is beauty, there's always appreciation of that beauty and that beauty comes from God. You can try to run from it. You can try to hide from it. You can try to set it aside or marginalize it or belittle it. 
but it always finds you as the thing which draws awe and appreciation. And here in this tiny little song from this really beautifully hardcore band with these wonderful lyrics about the Trinity and about the incarnation, you have even non-Christians essentially bowing underneath its weight. And I'm not saying that they understand this and they have a full sense of what's being said here and they can you know, allow quote unquote Christ to come into their lives. Like this is a work of the Holy spirit in regeneration. Yet, even with that, there's a common grace and the appreciation of the beauty of what's being said. And I can do nothing but affirm that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still not going to listen to the song, but <laughs> I'm glad that you and others enjoy it. <laughs> See, that's great. You know what? To speak to that, one of the things that I also was struck by is One of these videos I saw, it was an Australian couple. It was two like huge muscle bound dudes with like full sleeves. And they were just talking about how beautiful it is and how they listen to this music. They're not Christians, but they can really appreciate what's going on here. And one of the things I was touched by was that it is amazing that God uses sound by design to reach people of different tastes. And that, like we talked about before, that's theologically agnostic. That's a horrible combination of words. But this idea of like, style and preference has nothing to do with, you know, the, the music that God has given us right? and the way in which we ought to praise him in that music. So I really was just touched by, there are people who would never hear these words, maybe not in quite this way or hear the excitement or the passion behind them, except if they were done in this style. And it speaks right. to them, like their, their faces are contorted. They're like jamming, their heads are nodding, they're vibing with it. And that's only because it sounded like this and not like Michael Buble or Bing yeah. Crosby yeah. or Fanny Crosby for that matter. Right. Like there's something beautiful about that. That again is the beauty that I'm speaking of that, that I affirm. So I don't know. I was like, I was like prone to some serious doxology only because I was like, man, God, you are so good. Yeah. You're so wise. You're so far above us. And I worship you. Yeah. I consider it a limitation of myself that I can't, I can't <laughs> deal with this kind of music. I just can't. Well, I don't know what it is. I just can't do it. Here's the thing. Everybody has tastes and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like my taste is not country music, but I do appreciate that there's beauty in that. There's like specificity and nuance and wonderful construction, orchestration and arrangement. And God uses that to yeah. really touch people. So like I, I would rather people listen to like really good theologically solid country music than like music that's like, I catch them, he cleans them. Like that, you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it's better that the, the music be the entry point, the style be the entry point into yeah. good yeah. theology and worship than trying to contort the lyrics just to be something that's like mediocre, but like fits into some kind of like massive pop style. So yeah. before this gets to be an episode on like reformed pop music, that that's all I'm affirming. All right. Well, speaking of vacuous music with no content... <laughs> That nobody should enjoy. Uh, I'm just going to blast straight into this denial. So uh, here we go. A, a little bit behind the curtain of the Society of Reform podcast. We have a little telegram chat with uh, some of the other guys in the society. And some of them were making some jokes about, you know, we were talking about Chris Tomlin last week. And uh, some somebody, Jesse, I think it was you. I think that this is your fault. <laughs> I think it does start L- with me. Linked a, a, a link to a, vid- a music video I did. of uh, Passion featuring Chris Tomlin singing God's Great Dance Floor. And I, I just, I'm not sure why, but I watched it, like seven and a half <laughs> minutes of it. It's like a solar eclipse. You just can't take your eyes off of it, even though it's burning itself into your retinas. This song is so dumb. Like, why? <laughs> it's so dumb. So 
<laughs> I, my denial today, just to make it a little more broad, more broader than like, let's just hate on Chris Tomlin. Yeah, which is fine. Let's just hate on Chris Tomlin. But I'm denying this concept of like worship concerts. So when you when you watch this video, there's a difference between congregational singing, right? And, sure. and a concert environment or performance. It, it's not the style, right? You you could, I'm not sure how, but you could train a congregation to sing in a metalcore style and do congregational singing that way. But you could do that. I don't know why you would, but you could. You sure. can do con- you can do country western music, you can do you could worship with rap and you can train the congregation to do that. I don't know if those things are wise, but you could do those things. That's congregational worship where there's an intentionality of purposefully training the congregation so that it's not a performance so that the the people up front are worshiping that they're worshiping in front of the people with the express purpose of bringing the people along with them into worship. Right. So some of this, you know, like this most easily comes forward if you're singing very simple songs with repetitive melodies and repetitive repetitive phrase structures. This is why hymns were so important is because they follow a very similar melodic arrangement. That's why they're so repetitive. Is it teaches the congregation how to sing in that style. This is not that. So this this music video is at some sort of giant conference. It's a circular stage, right? So the band is in the middle of this circular stage. They have this thing that Chris Tomlin at one point in the video calls the praise pit, which is like those little pockets, you know, like it's a circular stage and then there's like catwalks and there's like these groups of people that are inside the gaps between the catwalks. And so like he comes out and it's it's just clearly a concert. There's lasers, there's a big drum kit. And this is the part that just got me. You know what I'm about to say is <laughs> at one point during the song, a guy in a full mariachi outfit comes out with a trumpet right. and is doing this really, really jamming trumpet solo. Right. It's great. And Chris Tomlin is like dancing around him in a circle, like he's the like he's the golden idol of Nebuchadnezzar or something. <laughs> And oh and God. it's just it's just strange and bizarre and weird. And it was the, the the thing that really struck me about why I want to say this is more of a worship concert than a worship, I don't know, like a just a service or just like a congregational singing. Although some of the shots of people, you know, there's like candid shots, they're they've they've got the camera on the crowd. Some of them have people singing along with the song. Right. For the most part, people are smiling and clapping and jumping and dancing. They're not singing with Chris Tomlin. Like the, the music is not arranged in a way to lend itself to that. It's not particularly simple. It's it's sort of moving faster than most people would be able to sing comfortably. Um, and it's just the, the energy and the drive behind it is so much performance-based. I do have to say this, though. Chris Tomlin has some serious, impressive cardio going on in this music video <laughs> because he is and I, I don't know maybe maybe there's a, maybe there's a track laid over this and he's not actually singing but it struck me as a live concert track he's moving around that stage he's dancing and running and jumping and you don't hear any breathlessness at all i don't know how old chris tomlin is but he's got some seriously awesome cardio but this is just like i i, I almost don't want to say this but like people should go watch this video and learn what not to do because it's it's that blatantly obvious that this is this has nothing to do with congregational worship. And right. let me say this, like I don't I don't have a problem with 
like Christian themed concerts where people go to enjoy a performance. I'm not, I have no problem with that. Like we joke around about like me running into like DC talk members at the airport and stuff. That's, that's I, not a joke. I think that's totally, well, yeah, it was a true story, but like, I'm totally fine with that. I, I, I'm not into music in such a way where I would pay money to go see a concert anymore, but I don't have a problem with people who want to go enjoy a concert. And the fact that the lyrics are Christian themed or that it's a Christian band, a band of Christians singing about Jesus, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's this worship concert concept that I think actually Chris Tomlin probably was like the architect of this or like the the origin point of this, where like there's this event or this concert event that's set up like a concert. It's, It's orchestrated like a concert. The people going are acting like it's a concert. Um, it very much is not a worship service, but it's this weird middle ground that they've tried to construct. And it just it's just yucky. Like you watch it and you just feel a little yucky about it. Cause it's it's like taking this thing that's supposed to be pure and supposed to be for God, and it's making it entirely about like sensual personal fulfillment and like enjoyment. It's just it's just gross. It just makes you feel gross when you think about it. Right. It's almost impossible for us not to sound like theological old men here, but I'm, I'm willing to yeah, shake my fist and go out on my lawn. So I'm with you and I'm just going to wrap my denial into this because this is way better than what I had planned. Actually, as soon as you said the word mariachi, you had me. So basically I think one day we should do like a really fully orbed, fully blown conversation about this type of thing. We haven't, I don't think done that yet. We've kind of no pun intended danced around it a little bit. <laughs> And so, but the thing here is that we're, we're not, I, I want to be clear for people who might be throwing their phones against the wall right now. We're not saying, like you said, you can't have Christian concerts. This is like a weird middle ground because we're talking about like a passion event. We're not talking about the Lord's right. day, at least theoretically. I don't know that it was the Lord's day, but I think if you watch this, you'll just be like, it's just bizarre. The way you said it was right on. It's just strange. And so whether it's like the, having the dude dressed in this mariachi garb, like yeah, why he can't just jam out in the trumpet and the trumpet by himself without that. I don't know whether it was trying to bring a sense of diversity to the music. I don't really know, but yeah. that coupled with, so the strangeness of this environment in which they're in. And all I can presume of course, is that the praise pit is like reappropriating the mosh pit right. yeah. for worship style, of course, which is like a little bit hokey. You're kind of like, okay, come on. Like right. we could be better than that. We don't have to try to like, redeem every little thing and make a cutesy or cliche to do that. Yeah. But the song itself is uh, super confusing. <laughs> super dumb. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so it doesn't bad. say, it doesn't say a lot. So like when you, yeah. when you see people like trying to embrace this as doxology, I will be honest with you. It's confusing to me because, and this is somebody who's like in uh, my church, maybe disclosing too much. We have actually done this song for our VBS. Cause the, here's, here's the thing. Like you said, the kids like it because it's fast moving. It's got a good vibe. Chris Tomlin can write good melodies. Yeah, it's a catchy song. Yeah. in pop music, he, nobody's going to discredit him for that. But the chorus is the thing that is like super strange. The chorus is really says, I feel alive. I come alive. I am alive on God's great dance floor. <laughs> I just, I can't, I just can't. Yeah. What is so that? this is the, yeah, this is what we're saying is like, Given the opportunity to say something more substantial, it would be helpful to say something more substantial. Like, I, I really don't know what that means. The, the lyrics in the verses are maybe a little bit more helpful, but they're also, like, I would say evangelical enigmatic. They, they're just kind of words that we use in spirituality. I mean, the first course is, or for, excuse me, first verse is, I'm coming back to the start where you found me. I'm coming back to your heart. 
Now I surrender. Take me. This is all I can bring. Yeah. Like it's not, here's the thing. It's not wrong, but it's not even right. And I feel like that's a worse criticism against lyrics. So I think that's what we're saying about this is like, it's just a really weird thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, some of it, I think you're right. I think evangelically and enigmatic is like a good description of a lot of these songs is like, they don't really mean anything. So I think like philosophically from like a philosophy of language perspective, it's like these empty vapid lyrics. And I think the intention behind that, if this is even, if they're even being sophisticated enough to think this way is like, it's these empty hollow lyrics and then you invest your own meaning into them. But like, that's dangerous. Like that's not, that's not how we're supposed to worship. Like we're supposed to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, not in like, feels and impressions like that's like this is and and like even the lyrics that are there i look at them i'm like really like that doesn't make any sense like the um the sort of like pre-chorus or refrain is like you'll never stop loving us no matter how far we run you'll never give up on us all of heaven shouts let the future begin let the future begin what does that even mean but but like the fact is like yeah at some point god abandons us to our own sin if we run far enough sure. like right, like sure. there's an element of like there's these there's phrases that sound so like they sound so good but then when you really think about what they mean you're like wait a second like uh, I don't know if this show's even going anymore, but there was a show, I think it was called the Synergist Podcast. It was like S-I-N. Mm-hmm. And they had this um, this intro song, right? It's like an Arminian podcast, like Synergist is a play on synergism. And like the intro was like, you'll hold me tight, you'll never let me go. Like you'll, you'll never let me fall away. And I'm like, unless I might exercise my own free will to reject your <laughs> grace. Like like the, the lyrics of the song don't make sense given like the theological framework that the person is trying to communicate. And like this song, like, okay, there's actually a line in the song. It makes me wonder if this song was actually like, it was probably written for the passion conference. Like it was written for that event because there's a line in the song where he says, we're going to turn this dome into one massive dance floor. That's part of the song. What dome? Like the dome of the rock? Like, what are we talking about here? (laughs) The Astrodome, the Metrodome, like my bald dome. What are we talking about here? It's just weird, empty, meaningless nonsense that's like invested with all this emotionalism. And then because you feel really emotional, like, of course, then you're being genuine. Like God's God's approves your sacrifice of feels like it just doesn't. Sure. I don't it know. Can move, it can move in that direction. I think that's what warning against. There's a proclivity there for this yeah. to get out of hand. And I, I want to be clear again, Chris Tomlin has written much better songs than this, yeah. both I would say lyrically and even melodically. But my gut is that it's a dancey tune. And so it made sense, at least in some ways, to to comport that dancey musical vibe and cadence with some lyrics that talked about God's great dance for. But I think if you said to almost any Christian, nominal or committed or otherwise, what is God's great dance for? Every person would say, I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> right now. And I, and I think that's the point is just that this yeah. is like a really strange thing. It's, we can't even say it's a bridge too far to cross because I don't know where this bridge is trying to go. So it's just a really strange thing. I think again, you saying it was just bizarre 
watch it, loved ones. And and I think like the warning here, unfortunately, like songs like this, this is what takes some people into the direction of saying like, this is why we do exclusive like Psalm the Day because it's just better to like have actual training wheels on the bike then they take them off and fall into the ditch on either side. So this is an extreme and maybe a hyperbolic example of some evangelicalism in music that's gone to like an extreme, but it's uh, it's definitely a warning. It's a cautionary tale. If you're writing music, please literally for the love of God and your brothers and sisters, don't use lyrics like God's great dance floor. It's not particularly yeah. helpful. Yeah. I want to read just real quick something out of the scriptures here because <laughs> I thought you're going to go back to the lyrics. <laughs> No, 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 no. But it, it relates to that. It, so there's this weird passage in Isaiah, and and translators are really sometimes pretty split on how to translate this. It's out of Isaiah 28, uh, verse 10, and then it repeats again later on in, in verse 13. I'm going to read it first out of the English Standard Bible, um, because I want you to read kind of like how the translators try to translate it into like normal English. It says here, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Uh, but before that, it says, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast, right? So it's it's got this image of like children, like he's teaching knowledge to children. But there's actually sort of like a, almost like a... Um, almost like a condemnation of immature thinking that's built into this. Because then in verse 13, um, it says, and the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So the idea is like, there are those who receive the word of the Lord, not not the scriptures. This ties into our topic today. I didn't even really mean that, but it, they receive the word of the Lord, but to them, it's kind of like nonsense. It's it's right. just like words on a page. Right. The Lexham English Bible translates this in a way that I think is, I think it's taking too many liberties with the text, but it actually, it's like they overinterpret the text and then translate it. It says instead, it says, the word of Yahweh to them will be blah, blah upon blah, 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 blah upon blah, blah, gaga upon gaga, gaga upon gaga. So like it's trying to get at this idea that like the word of the Lord, it's like Charlie Brown teacher talk. Right. The word of the Lord will be right. It's it's this idea that like we take the word of the Lord and we make it into these like nothing meaningless statements. It's kind of the same idea that Jesus is getting at when he's like the the Gentiles or the, the pagans heap up meaning words thinking that because of the quantity of their words, God will hear them. Like this is what's going on with God's great dance floor, right? It's blah, blah upon blah, blah and gaga upon gaga. Like you could make a pretty catchy song out of blah, 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 gaga, ga. Like you could do that. A lot of songs have lots of la la's and na na's. Like it's just meaninglessness. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm trying not to get too like hard on Chris Tomlin. This seems like a song that was written for an event that was designed sure. to hype up the crowd. It was probably like the first song of the evening. They're trying to get everybody energized and jazzed up. Okay. I get it. Like, and it was a concert. It wasn't a worship service. It right, was a concert. Exactly. So I right. get it, but we have to be so careful, especially as someone writing worship lyrics. This is probably the best practical argument for exclusive psalmody you could make you're literally putting words in the mouths of the people to praise God with. And if you put the wrong words, then they're praising wrongly. Like that's how serious it is. 
So, I mean, it's it's fun to make fun of this song. It's fun to like make fun of oceans. Like, you call me out on the water. Like, all of these songs, they're kind of like empty, meaningless. But there's actually some biblical argumentation behind like not just using these empty, vain phrases to try to worship the Lord with. It just isn't, it's not a good idea. I think, well, of course, I think you're right. And I think it's helpful for people to think about the danger of this kind of thing. Like I've made this, I promulgated this argument before that worship leaders are elders. They ought to be qualified as that as such because of this very thing that there's a teaching, of course, that happens in music. And one might argue that when you leave the church on the Lord's day, that what ends up ringing in your mind, in your ears is not necessarily a sermon you heard, but the songs that you sang. Right. And so all these things come together in such a way that we really ought to value. It's almost impossible to overweight the emphasis of music in our lives, especially with worship. So I'm with you. Like it's, this is a, again, a particular instance and we're not meaning to necessarily harp on Chris Tomlin writ large. It's this particular song, but it's also a little bit fun to pick apart these things because it shows that we want to be thoughtful in the way that we approach music in the songs that we sing. And I remember a time, I'm guessing you remember this as well. You and I were at the beach together. This is going to sound super weird now that I say it like out loud. You and I were <laughs> at the beach together. We were wading into the ocean. And then without it's warning, true. all of a sudden, you had your cell phone with you. And I start to hear <laughs> oceans being played. Yes. <laughs> That's another catchy song. <laughs> it now is. I'm going like, to have that song stuck in my head all day. Yeah, it's another. And, and as somebody like, I, I think we both really appreciate and love music. I know a lot of our brothers and sisters who listen do as well. Uh, it's just something I have a passion for bringing to bear good theology and music. Like, there's no yeah. excuse not to do that. And w- we need more and more people there in the, this is not to say there's so many, we've talked about this before. Like, for example, one that comes to the top of mind is like city of light, some yeah. contemporary worship that is like really rich in theology. And just because it's like a hymn doesn't mean it is great theology. There's plenty of hymns yeah. that actually fall short in this realm. There are but lots th- of I understand. Yeah. I understand that. Like that writing style, what had a greater proclivity towards depth in its expression. Right. We ought to try to return to that. And yeah. so I think writing hymns like, you know, going to exclusive somnity, I understand that appeal because especially if we're not talking about if we're not conflating exclusive somnity with like instrumentation, right. like especially you just can't go wrong singing the scripture. So if we could bring more and more of that in. And so that's why, again, I go back to bands like Wills the gate who are doing that in a contemporary way and to your point with the passage that you just quoted, again, in my affirmation, you have people listening to that and acknowledging like, oh, there's beauty there for even for them. It's blah, blah, blah. It's, right. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so, but the opportunity to like actually hear the gospel articulated in music, the true gospel, yeah. not a watered down version, not an idealistic version, not a philosophical version, not one that just makes us feel good. Like the last thing I'll say is this, if we evaluated our music like we are prone to evaluate somebody like Joyce Mile, Joyce, Joyce Myers, Joyce Myers, or, <laughs> um, oh man, I just lost it. The, Beth Moore. My best, my, uh, Beth Moore, oh, my Joel best Osteen. life now, Joel Osteen. If we were to try to provide that kind of critical feedback on sermons, like we'd never accept, for most of the part, the reform people would never accept a Joel Osteen style sermon. But my question is, how much, even in my own life, do we accept a Joel Osteen style song? Yeah. Just because. Yeah. It's catchy. And I would just say like, man, let's get our musicians together and write some, some great stuff that is catchy, yeah. but has all of the breath and the scope of God's full counsel represented in the scriptures. True that. True that. Let's do it. So speaking of scriptures. Yeah. 
Let's do, do you it. see how I just like just ran right into that? It's true. Segue. You did. That was, was like blah blah upon blah blah, but in a good way. <laughs> now that we have like basically just thirty minutes to get to like our actual topic, <laughs> let's now hand. talk so, about the most important thing in Christianity besides God Himself. Uh, yeah, yeah so ex- exactly. You know, like so, someday, someday we should do a, a whole episode where we, it's just like affirmations, denials, one after the other, and like maybe people <laughs> would love that. We maybe. could go for like seven, eight. We should just start hours. a new podcast with that. <laughs> the eight affirmations and denials podcast, <laughs> the reformed affirmations cast. Uh, I mean, we'll make it happen. But you're right. This, this is like a super important topic, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're coming to this point because. Maybe you tell me if this is hyperbolic. I think when when the answer to the question, like what is Christianity, it depends in right. large part on your view of the scripture. Yes. You know, if we believe that the Bible is the very word of God and infallible, we will develop one conception of Christianity. Now, that's not to say that on open-handed issues, we will see them differently. I think we've spoken about that at length. But if we believe that it is only like this collection of human writings, perhaps like considerably above average in its spiritual moral teachings, but nevertheless, if it's just filled with errors, it's just human, then we're right. going to develop a radically different conception of Christianity. And so to come to the place of saying, what really is the scriptures is in many ways seeing what really is Christianity and what really is God? Because everything that we talked about with the Trinity, which we really love discussing, is, I would say, by and large, from God's self-disclosure in the scripture. So right. even there, we were standing on a presupposition of what we believed about what the scripture is. So we really have to address that. And here we are. Yes. Yeah. So we we talked about this a little bit off air is when you're doing a systematic theology, anything, if you're doing a podcast where you have to make a sequence of things, if you're writing a systematic theology, the confessions, you have to make decisions about like what comes first. And because everything is so interconnected, sometimes you just have to start somewhere. And so a lot of times, you know, systematic theology will start with the scriptures or they'll start with revelation and then they'll go into the scriptures. We went with God first. And, and part of that is Christianity is sort of this self-referential circular religion because we're talking about things of ultimate truth. And so when you have an ultimate authority of some sort, there can be no appeal to justify why that authority is an authority. So God God is the authority over the whole universe because he's God. There's no other explanation. And the scriptures, we have to be able to justify the existence of the scriptures based on some sort of first principle, and that's where we are today. The first principle that justifies why the scriptures are the authority is because they are the word of God. They are breathed out from God. And so I want to read a passage. I don't think anybody who's familiar with the Bible at all is going to be surprised which passage I'm reading, Uh, but I'm going to read out of 2 Timothy. I'm going to start in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for corrections, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So this is kind of like the classic text that right. you go to for sort of the nature of the Bible, 
where it comes from, what it does, how it functions. All of these things are embedded in this text. Some of them explicitly, some of them you have to tease out a little bit of the implications. When we're talking about the scriptures as Christians, what we're really we're talking about is this collection of human writings that is somehow superintended by God such that we can say it comes from God, it is exactly what God intended it to be, and it accomplishes exactly what God intended it to do. And so we, we use the word inspired, or better yet, expired, right? It's breathed right. out, not breathed in by God, but breathed out by God. We use that word of inspiration uh, to basically refer to all of those realities. All of the perfections of Scripture, which we're going to talk about some of the perfections of Scripture next week, we're going to talk about the function of Scripture and how it operates in the life of the Christian, all of those things are dependent on the reality that this this collection of documents, and only this collection of documents, comes from God in a very particular way that is above and beyond the normal process of providence, right? Because on one level... Every document is superintended by the Holy Spirit because th- because every single word that's on the page is exactly what the Holy Spirit intended to be on the page because that's how providence works. But if you go back to our, our providence series, there's a particular kind of miraculous intervention that the Holy Spirit engages in where the normal process of providential causation is circumvented. And so we don't want to say that this is a strict dictation theory right? Sometimes you'll hear people will go into a dictation theory where God actually sort of like just uses the the human writers as though they were pens, right? They're just the tool in in God's hand. Um, There's some, there's some reformed thinkers in the historical reformed tradition, even now that, that would hold that view. We don't hold that view. The main line of reformed theology does not hold that view, even in the reformation. But even though we acknowledge it's human writings, it's this collection of human writings and no other human writings that are superintended upon by the Holy Spirit in a very special, unique way, such that they accomplish everything they are intended to accomplish, and they function exactly how they are supposed to function, and they are exactly what he intended them to be in this unique, special way that we call inspiration. So it's important to kind of talk about inspiration and how the Bible presents that as happening. There's a couple texts that sort of give us a little bit of a glimpse behind that. This is one of them, right? It's breathed out by God. That's a a word picture. Obviously, like, this isn't like some sort of mysterious thing where like God breathes and like these pieces of paper with text on them materialize. Like, that's not what the text is saying. Instead, it's referring to this sort of special, unique interaction between the Holy Spirit acting upon the wills of men to write these documents down. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important for us to sort of set the groundwork there in terms of how these, how these texts came to be and what about them in their origin particularly is what inspiration is talking about is different than other texts. Yeah, that's right on. Like, I think there's a tendency if you have been a Christian for any length of time to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I get it. I know what you're talking about. But I think for all of us, the counter to that is like, you think you know but you don't really know in the sense that like there's a grand appreciation for the fact that when we say it's God breathed, that's really one of the most important expressions in all of the new Testament. Right. 
that the Spirit of God would bring forward from the pens of various individuals, this cohesive document, which expresses who he is with such amazing continuity that the probability that it could be formed outside of some kind of superintending will is basically nil. And so you have these human authors who are bringing like the flavor of their humanity. That is like their personality, their expression. And yet at the same time, the spirit nevertheless is bringing the full weight of God in his authority in what they're writing down. So like the Bible from start to finish down to its very words is like the inerrant word of God. And so this should shape then like every approach to the scriptures. Every time we hear it, every time we see it on a screen, every time we have the ability and what an ability it is and a great gift to have it in our homes, to open it up and then to consume it. Here is something that God has given it to us. We just can't overemphasize this. It's like literally impossible. That was actually not meant to be a pun. It's literally impossible (laughs) that we should be able to see these words on a page and understand that. Now, I want to like provide some distinction here. We're not like bibliologists in the sense that we're like worshiping the Bible itself. We're worshiping God who gives us these words. He is the authority, but this expression is so rich and so wonderful and so beautiful and so pointedly true that this is a differentiation of Christianity in both its specifics and in general. And beyond that, we should point out that like, even with what you said here about scripture identifying or speaking of its own capacities, that all truth at some point, all absolute truth must be self-referencing because there must be a point of authority which says, this is the way. And so what we find is we'd expect that the scripture would tell us this if it were in fact true. In other words, this is what we'd expect the scripture to say to us, that you ought to rely on this document because it comes from a God who is transcendent even while he is imminent. And so we find that perfectly like cohesively, harmoniously manifested in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a good time to sort of talk a little bit about, we'll probably come back to questions about canon in another episode, but it's important for us to sort of discuss what it is that makes something the scriptures, right? Because in the history of Christian interpretation and Christian tradition, there've been different answers to that question, right? So, so the Roman Catholic church would say something is scripture. If we say it's scripture, if the Pope says that it's scripture, or if a council says that it's scripture, then it is scripture. And that's, that's a a defining activity for the Roman Catholics. The Eastern Orthodox follow a similar kind of a perspective. It's not quite the same, but it's, it's similar enough that it falls on that part of the spectrum, right? So, so the Roman Catholic position is this document, the church has invested its own authority in, and so the church is determining what scripture is. For the Protestant, it's a different kind of function altogether, even though the church plays a role in it, right? It's not as though the church didn't do anything right. in deciding what books are the Bible and what they're not, but it's not a determining role. It's a recognition role. And so the scriptures are what they are because of who they come from. So a document is part of the Bible because it comes from God in this special way. 
Not because the church recognizes that, although we, we know that it's part of the Bible because the church has recognized it, right? It's, it's, that's an epistemological question. That's a question of how we know what the Bible is, not right. a question of how does something become part of the Bible. And that's an important distinction to make, right? Because we, we look at the history of the church, and there were periods of time where there was disagreement. I mean, there's disagreement in the visible church now, even if you consider Rome and, and Constantinople, and I suppose Ethiopia is really more where this comes in. But if you consider the the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox tradition to be part of the visible church, which I do, there's disagreement even among the visible church, what is the Bible and what's not. And so it's not so simple to just say like, yeah, I mean, everybody knows what the Bible is, because there's a there's more books in the Roman Catholic canon than there is in the Protestant canon. And right. even among some Protestants, you might get some Protestants who are are maybe a little bit more likely to accept the liberal argumentation who might say something like, yeah, I mean, Ephesians might not have been written by Paul. So maybe it's, maybe it doesn't have as much authority as Galatians does, which we know was written by Paul. Or you might have some that even draw this canon with the canon. I'm looking at you, Andy Stanley, right? Where it's like, <laughs> it's like, well, the words of Jesus, that's the real Bible. And like that, right. yeah, Paul had some good stuff to say. And like, yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit was helping him write those letters, but like, but the words of Jesus, like the red letters, those are the really important parts. And then like, oh, and then like the Old Testament, like, yeah, that was useful for its time, but like, this isn't the Old Testament. I like my bacon. This isn't the Old Testament anymore. Like, so it's not as simple to say, well, Christians just know what the Bible is because it's still a question, whether it's a, an explicit difference in the canon or whether it's this sort of implicit canon within a canon, like levels of authority or tiers of authority that you have to recognize. It's not so simple that all Christians recognize what this means. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, that's really fair. Like we have to, we presume a lot when it comes to the Bible, we presume that we're on the same page. I can't get away from like horrible puns that I'm not intending yeah. to make. We, we presume that we're basically speaking on the same way, like that we mean the same things that we're talking about the same things. It, it's not just in Protestantism, you know, for instance, when the Mormons come to my door, they want to speak about how we have so much in common with the scriptures. Right. And yet I say to them, the first thing I say when they say that is, but don't you believe the scriptures are, cor are corrupted? And they say, right. well, yes, of course. <laughs> so right. Like, well, this is our problem. Like we can't even start to have a common language or common understanding because your theology is, has been shaped in part and in whole by the fact that you believe the scriptures are corrupted. And so therefore you can't believe it in its fullness. And so that is a real problem. I, I love what Peter says about the way in which his prophecy unfolds. This is really one of my favorite verses about the scriptures. And that's in, again, like you said, Tony, it's going to be a lot of passages or verses that people are familiar with. It's going to ring so true in your ears. And this is second Peter. And when he says that for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the ESV translation. And I love this idea of like being carried along. And I would extend that. I'm not extending that in an infallible way, but extending it in the sense of like with what you're saying, because God brings so much primacy to his word that is so important to him that he has carried us along in its development. Of course, the across the cross. Oh my word. Across the course <laughs> Of That's history. a tough sequence there, man. That's a tough set of words. Wow. That totally just undid me right there. And so 
in terms of like the development of what we have today, when you hold the published scriptures in your hands or you look at it on your application, we're seeing still God not abandoning the putting together of his word, the empowering of his word, that all of this preserves and is persistent even to this day. But what's especially reserved for those whom God orchestrated to write it is this idea that they were carried along. Like, I love this because being carried along means that you are, let's say that you're in the ocean again, not listening to oceans, but you're in the ocean and you're on, let's say like a boogie board or a surfboard. You're being pushed along by these waves, something outside of transcendent of yourself, of yourself, like a force. You are being carried along, but it's not you that are doing the carrying itself. That the force, the emphasis, the power, the authority of movement, everything that's pushing you forward is outside of yourself. And here we right. find that. So while that is far from a perfect analogy or metaphor, it's wonderful to think of in the sense that like God is still again, like using these human beings, not in partnership, because God right. doesn't need partnership from us for anything and certainly shouldn't rely on our partnership. And yet what he's doing is expressing himself in complete care, like clarity and with complete cogency right. into the full expression of theology and who he is. He's doing it, though, through these pens of these human authors. And so he's carrying them along. And so we also recognize that like, when you're being carried, by definition— like it's not your own emphasis. It's right. not your own activity. Right. It's not your own volition. When somebody carries you somewhere for whatever reason, I can't remember the last time I was carried. I don't know if you can remember the last time you were carried, but when you're a child and you're being carried somewhere, you're going somewhere according to that, in a sense, like transcendent or otherness power that's bringing you forward into some place. Right. Right. And so we find that the scriptures continually speak of itself in this way. And again, not in a way where it's like we hold up the Bible itself as if like the words on the page are holy or you can't write or underline because there's something sacred about the text itself. This is, we need to distinguish like the word of God, though, because that goes back to, again, everything was we said about like God becoming flesh and him actually being the word as well. But this is the beauty of having everything written down for us. Like, I don't know, it just blows me away. Like there's some instructions that you receive in life, written or otherwise, that are really bad. Yeah. They're just not great or confusing. Like if anybody's tried to build the Kia furniture, that can be a confusing and frustrating <laughs> experience. But to have the graciousness and loving kindness of God manifested in the fact that he gave us a document for posterity's sake, that we might understand the history of his people and who he is with clarity that he says that this is everything that you need for life, that this should inform your worship, your understanding of me. That is like an amazing gift that I think we just tend to underemphasize in our day and age because the Bible tends to be a ubiquitous document. Yeah. And, you know, I want to read something out of the Westminster Confession because I think this is important too because we have to sort of step back from some of what we might immediately think. And this is going to be kind of like a maybe a contentious statement for some people. Ooh, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you're about to say. But we, we have to recognize that inspiration, properly speaking, is a feature of the original text. And this yes. is actually something, yes. the original, like, what the Apostle John wrote when he was writing the book of Revelation. But, like, that piece of par parchment or vellum or whatever it was he was writing on, that piece with that ink and no other properly speaking is inspiration because inspiration is something that God does in reference to the writer. The writer is inspired 
to write inspired words. The words themselves are just arrangements of ink and sound on a piece of paper. So the, from chapter um, chapter one of the Westminster uh, Confession, um, paragraph eight, it says the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of writing it was the most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. And what that means is, although we might speak of the original text as inerrant or as inspired, and only the original text as inspired, we also have to sort of have, I almost want to call it like the transitive property of inspiration, right? So, so there's the original text, that's what's inspired, but then there are also potentially exact copies of that text in the original language that we can right. say are inspired, but in a different way than the original right. text is inspired. And then now we have faithful translations of those original texts that are in a slightly different way inspired as well. That's not to say that the translation process is inspired, right? The ESV in one way, I mean, we're reformed. We love nuances. We love yes and no answers. In yeah, one sense, do. the ESV is an inspired text because it's a faithful translation of the word of God. Of course. In another sense, it's not because we acknowledge that there are errors in translation. Some some translations are better than others, right? Some, sometimes there might be, like, for example... The ESV uh, does not consider uh, the long ending of Mark to be part of the scriptures, right? It includes it as like a footnote or like a, an asterisk, but it doesn't. And so there's a difference there. There are some passages that are translated based on one manuscript tradition that's different than other translations may, may choose based on a different translation. So we have these contradictions between uh translations that we have to recognize, and we resolve this by understanding the nature of inspiration, right? God moved on the particular author of a text in a particular way. It's interesting in that Peter text, because that language of being carried along by the Holy Spirit is actually the same language that would be used of a boat being carried along by yes, the wind. Yes, right? exactly. It's, it's the wind that's in the sails, which right. lines up nicely with Paul's language of it being God-breathed, right? It's this, this, it's this spirit breath metaphor, right? We know that the word spirit and breath are the same word in Greek. It's this metaphor of the, the wind pushing this vessel forward in a particular way. Well, we can't say that the wind is pushing the sailor on the deck forward because it's not. Right. It's pushing the whole boat forward. So there's a sort, sort of a similar kind of way of talking, I thinking about, I think, maybe I'm out on a limb here, of talking about... Um, they're called apographs, which are like exact copies, and right. then then other manuscripts that are not exact copies. There's this sort of varying way of talking about inspiration. If we're not careful, we lose sight of the fact that it was the original manuscripts that God inspired directly, right? And that's what the confession is getting at. They are inspired, immediately inspired by God. The original in Hebrew or Greek or, you know, asterisks in Aramaic for like tiny portions of the Old Testament— that was immediately inspired. The fact that it talks about something being immediately inspired implies a sort of non-immediate inspiration for things like exact copies and, and faithful translations of faithful manuscripts. I, that's just sort of a footnote for the conversation because I know some people will bring that question up, and right. I think it's really, really valuable for us to at least touch on it. But at the end of the day, what we have to recognize is that God has 
has given us these texts. I'm, I'm not finding the phrasing exactly, but but basically, in previous days, God spoke to the people, kind of borrowing the language of Hebrews here. He spoke right. to the people in sort of these non-durable ways, right? Dreams and visions and appearances and prophets who had these verbal or oracular prophecies. And then he saw fit in order to better preserve the church to commit that same holy to writing. And yes. like I said, I'm not finding the exact section here. Um, for some reason, I'm not seeing it. But that it's in the Westminster <laughs> Confession. I don't know what's going on. My brain is lost. But God gave us this, and he inspired it for a purpose. And right. so next week, you know, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means for something to be inerrant and inspired and or inerrant and infallible, which is really oh, just yeah. another way to say in a sort of expanded format, it comes from God, so it's perfect. Right? right. We sometimes call these the perfections of scripture. We'll also right. talk a little bit about perspicuity and clarity and sort of oh, talk about yes. how that works. Because you know, even even Paul sa- or even Peter says sometimes Paul's not super clear. So we have to talk about right. what that means and why <laughs> why we say the scripture's clear when the scripture says sometimes it's not clear. Right. But we're going to talk about that. And then after that, we're going to talk about what it means now, given the fact that this comes from God, that it's clear, that it doesn't contain errors, that it accomplishes what it's set out to do, what that means then for us as Christians for it to be our rule of faith and practice. So that's right. where we're going. We'll give you a preview. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure how much more we could loop on this subject, Jesse. I'm sure we could probably do several more hours if we needed to. Listen, you and I can always do several hours about any topic. If somebody said, like, talk to us about the weather, we could give you a four or five hour session right there and then no problem. Let me add to that by saying maybe a word of encouragement, something to leave people with that they can go and do. And that is because of everything that Tony just said, if you have a pastor or a teacher that continually propels you back into the languages a little bit to help you understand what the text is saying, this is why they're doing it is because this idea of where the inspiration lies, what's center of gravity. So it's always a lovely thing to have somebody help you understand what the original language said. That's not, as I've heard some people say, well, I, I don't want a lesson in languages. Just teach me what the Bible says. Well, one is the other. And so because yeah. like, at least in, for you and I, we speak English predominantly. And so because of that, we are going to naturally be at somewhat of a disadvantage and almost all people, because some of these languages are dead, to try to understand understand what the original author was saying as they were inspired in the language which they spoke and understood. So for that reason, it's super valuable to have really great teachers that push you back into trying to create word pictures to understand what the text is actually saying. That is a great benefit. And so we ought to lean into that and embrace that as much as we can. So if you have a pastor or any teacher that really does that, would you thank them? Because it's a lot of work to try to understand, to try to do the research, to try to appreciate, and try to bring that forward in a way that really helps people to understand what the Bible is actually teaching. There's a tendency, I think, in general evangelicalism to take the Bible at this really like high level and then to reinterpret, which leads, of course, to misinterpretation, or make it mean whatever you want to mean. It's the really great pastor says, this is what it means. Right. And that increasingly is taking a stand against this general idea that it can mean whatever it wants to mean. And so it's a wonderful thing to have like these really great kinds of teachers. So if you want to join us in this, if you're feeling some camaraderie, what we've just said, or 
you just want to be a greater part of this conversation, which we encourage all people to be, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there's this little link that says join the brotherhood. And there's a bunch of things you can do to be a part of this. You can subscribe to the podcast. I mean, subscribing to the podcast is like joining us in the praise pit. So maybe that's something... <laughs> That you'd like to do or send this episode to somebody else. We was wrestling through like, what does the Bible really mean? How do I know it's the word of God? What does it mean for it to be the word of God? Have a discussion around that. Say like, and you can blame it on us. Like listen to these two cartoons talk about this. And I want (laughs) to process this with you. That's a great way to have some more conversation. Of course, it's coming to the end of the year. And I always think about all the bills that we know we're going to have coming up that reset at the beginning of the year. We're so thankful to those who have given financially via Patreon. And there's a link to do that in this aforementioned webpage. We're so thankful for those, everybody who is giving to their churches generously and unreservedly. That is an expression of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And so we encourage you to do that. And of course, for those who have said, you know what? I want to give a little bit above and beyond that and do that toward the podcast. That's what keeps this free, loved ones. So we really appreciate everyone who's helping us with the hosting charges and the mixing charges. And, you know, like it's one thing to have like a podcast where you're saying decent things, but if you ever listen to a podcast where people sound awful, you realize you don't want to listen to that, right? So like all this costs, there are some fees associated with it. So thank you so much for everybody that supports us. Yeah. I'm about to throw you a curveball, Jesse. Okay. So Jesse, Jesse just launched into let's let's land the plane mode. And I'm just like, this is going to be one of those times where like oh, you get no. the signal from the tower oh, and no. you have to pull back up into a holding period. Fly so by. I want to I wanna run through a passage and just demonstrate why it is so important for teachers to be well-versed and, and capable to understand and to study the scriptures in, in the Greek or in the Hebrew. Well, that's not entirely unrelated. It's not unrelated, but you went that's into this good. whole, like, let's, let's thank everyone on Patreon and, and the show. And I'm like, let's do another hour. So, not yet. So this thing that we're talking about, about inspiration... And the reason that I bring up that it really, in a very particular sense, only applies to the original manuscript or, in a very close sense, exact copies of the original manuscripts. This is why it's important for your pastors, your seminary professors, even your Bible study leaders to be doing the work to understand what what the original languages mean and say. Not everybody has the time to learn Koine Greek. I get that. I wish everybody did. I think it would be a huge benefit to the church if everybody was competent in Greek, but it's not realistic. But I want to run through a passage. This came up several times in conversations I was having in the Reform Pub this last week. Somehow the pub got, the pub does this thing where it gets on a particular topic. There's like a hundred threads on the exact same topic. And one of the, the, the topics of the week was, is sin is a sinful desire. Is that sin in itself, right? If I Mm. desire to overindulge in chocolate cake, that's a sinful desire, but am I sinning in having that desire? And the passage that keeps on getting brought up to say, no, it's not, it's okay for you to have sinful desires as long as you don't act on them is James 1, verses 14 and 15. And so I'm going to, first I'm going to read it in English in the ESV. I'm going to explain why people argue that that means it's okay. Uh, And then I want to run through some Greek things that show you that's actually not at all what James is saying. So verse 14, but every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the people who want to say that sinful desire or 
let's not say sinful desire. Let's say desire for sin, desire for a sinful thing, that right. that is not itself sin. What they want to do is they want to draw this distinction that there seems to be this sequence in verse 15, right? There's verse 14, each person is tempted, and that seems to be a distinct thing from desire. And then in verse 15, there seems to be this sequence where it's desire, now desire conceives and gives birth to sin, and then Mm -hmm. sin conceives, or when sin grows up, it it brings forth death. So it looks like this sequence of things where desire as a verb, sin as a verb, and then and death, or I suppose these are all nouns, but it's the sequence of entities. Well, when you look at the Greek, what you actually see is in verse 14, it says each person is tempted when he is being lured and enticed away by desire. So that's like the main topic, right? This is what temptation is. It's when you're lured and desire and enticed away by your desires. So it's right. an internal desire that's luring you and enticing you. And lure and entice is not a positive thing. It's not a neutral thing. That's seen as a negative thing. Right. So temptation is defined as desire luring and enticing you away in parentheses into sin. Then it says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's a really bad translation. Most English translations follow it because it's awkward if you translate the way it's actually written in Greek. Desire is not a not a verb. So desire is actually the actor in these in this, just like it was the actor in luring and enticing you. So verse 15 is describing what this tempted looks like. So each person is tempted. That is, desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin has has fully grown and and brings forth death. That's what tempted is. That whole complex of ideas is tempted. And when you look at it in the Greek, conceived is an aorist participle, which means it is a, a concept that is considered complete when considered from the reference time point of the main verb, right? So this is happening hypothetically in the past from the from the prefer perspective of the main verb. So it's better to pronounce it than desire, having already conceived, is bringing forth sin, right? So desire has already conceived. That's the luring and enticing is the conception being seen here. In view, it's already done. It's already taken care of. It's already accomplished. Desire, having conceived, having already conceived, brings for, is bringing forth death. That's what it's doing. It's bringing forth sin. It's giving right. birth to sin, right? And then sin, now we see when it is fully grown, we think of that as like the next step in the sequence, but it's actually sin having come full term or having been accomplished. Right. Right. It's, an, it's Again, it's an aorist participle. Having been accomplished, we're looking at a a metaphor of birth. So birth, desire has already conceived, and it's giving birth to sin. Sin, now that it's being given birth to, has come full term. And now it's bringing forth death. So the current time frame in view in this is giving birth to sin or birthing sin and birthing death. It's the same word. That's what's happening right now in reference to the verse. The things that happened in the past are desire conceiving and des- and sin becoming full grown. And that's the act of being tempted, which is when you're, de- you're lured and enticed by your desire. So rather than this picture of like this sequence of things that happens where like you can, you can be tempted, but not yet have desire and you can desire, but not yet have sin and you can sin, but that sin might not lead to death. 
That's what right. you get when you look at this exclusively in the English and you're not competent enough to go back and look at it. When you look at it in the Greek, it is clear as day what is going on here. It's not that there's some sequence where you can break them up into discrete steps. It's that from the point of view of the author, which is James, he's already saying that if you've been tempted by your desires, you've been lured and enticed away, sin is already conceived, it's already come full term, and it's bringing forth death. Now, you might say, where's the hope in that? The hope in that is that the death either comes to you or it's gone to Christ, if you right, want to get to exactly. the gospel quickly. So this is just an example of why it's important to recognize the inspiration of the text, properly speaking, applies to the original manuscripts in their original languages and exact copies. There's this secondary sense in which we can say the ESV is inspired. But if your pastor is never looking at the Greek, is never looking at the Hebrew, and has no idea how to do either of those things, then you really are in a bad situation. Because your pastor might look at this passage and teach you exactly the opposite of what it's actually saying. 100% the opposite, because they don't know enough to look at the original languages. So this is why it's important, you know, loved ones here, is, is it's important for us to recognize God intended the words that are on the page. He did not make any mistakes in what he inspired. There's no, there's no word or tense or letter or article that is not there for a reason. Now, I don't love to make arguments and theological treatises on like one particular verb tense. Like, I mean, Paul does that, so it can't be all wrong. He, he, he makes an entire theological hermeneutical system on the basis of a word being singular instead of plural in Galatians, right? So it's not a, not a bad thing to do, but you can't do any of this if you're just coming from the English. You can't do it. If you're right. thinking of the ESV as like the end-all, be-all word of God or the NASB or the LSB or the HCSB or the CSB or the BBQ King or whatever, James. the DQ or the King James or the you know LOL or whatever it is, you are going to run into problems. You're going to run into problems. This is just one example. I could go through a dozen verses of common exegetical errors that happen when you're looking at the English versus when you're looking at the Greek or when you're looking at the English versus when you're looking at the Hebrew. It really becomes a problem. So I don't know how we get back to the ending the show part of the show other than to get back to it. But this is important. This is why, as Protestants, we need to learn the languages. We need to understand them. Not everyone can learn the languages. Something like Lagos Bible Software, which, by the way, if you'd like to purchase Lagos there Bible Software, go. you can. You can go to lagos.com slash reformbrotherhood. You can get a discount on your package. You can get right. a couple free books. Um, it's available. But it, even if you don't have that, you can piece together those kinds of resources online. But it's important to look at the original languages and understand what the difference is between English and Greek or English and Hebrew. That's really, really key. Right. Wow. Yeah. See, listen, you thought we were done. We weren't even close to we being weren't. done. No. That we just basically just psyched everybody out. It was like, you are about to advance to your next podcast. And we're like, psych. Just kidding. People still say that, psych. I do. No, I don't. You do. You just did. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but I haven't said that in like years. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, here we go. Well, listen, if you <laughs> want to become a part of the Reformed Brotherhood. Do everything I said about like seven minutes ago. So you've got that already. In addition to that, you can hit us up by email at info at reformbrotherhood.com. But you know what's better than email, Tony, is for somebody to call us and to leave a voicemail. Anything you want. We prefer short, but anything you want, and especially we're still looking, honestly, this is my plea. 
we're trying to get a question cast together. So short, succinct, cogent questions. That is the winning ticket right there. And if you have one, if you just dial 607, dial, that's like a skewmorph. You can't dial anymore. Push these <laughs> buttons. Push these numbers on They're your phone. They're not even real buttons. They're not even real buttons. It's all faux. Press the conceptual space that's occupied by a visual representation <laughs> of a number. That's that's what's happening. That's true. But if you're not concerned with that and you just want the number, here it is. 607-444-2767. Bros. Call that number in whatever way you want with whatever existential crisis you're having with respect to the numbers that you're actually <laughs> dialing. Leave us a very brief voicemail that if it's a question, we will bring it into the question cast and that's going to be coming soon. So join us. Yeah. Well, before I uh, get sidetracked on another eight minute <laughs> exegetical tangent, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. I really thought you were going to go back into another <laughs> passage. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. <laughs>